Well, good morning. Good morning. Happy Labor Day. Anybody been laboring over the weekend? That's what you do on Labor Day. Do some laboring at home, some projects that you didn't get to this summer. How many guys have been building a paper airplane? Okay, if you're not, haven't been with us the last few weeks, you're wondering what on earth am I doing here? Why am I in a church with paper airplanes and chocolate milk on the platform? Well, because we're moving on. We're moving on from flying airplanes to making chocolate milk. Okay, that's what we do around here. We go, we move towards the deeper things. So. All right, we are in a series we've titled A Throne of Grace. It it is essentially, we're going to stare into the 26 words in this one passage to help us gain some much-needed insights for our prayer lives. And so I just felt like the Lord wanted us to give some significant attention to a dimension of our walk with Him that is critical that it can't fall into disrepair. It can't become something that we used to have, we, we once did. It's just not current. It's, it's, it's not fresh. And, and there's things that invigorate our prayer lives. And, and so we're just going to stare into these 26 words here, and we've been doing that a little bit, to learn from them in such a way that our prayer lives actually begin to take on some qualities that are going to help it to exist, right? If we've got a poor prayer life, it's, it's, it's quite because it's, it's not biblically enriched. When our prayer life is biblically enriched, it becomes something that's an adventure and something we experience and something that affects us, which means that we're going to want to do it more. When it becomes rote, disengaged from the scriptures, then it becomes something we don't want to do. And so therefore it suffers disrepair. So what does that have to do with chocolate milk? <clears throat> Let me push this up here. So you can fully enjoy this chocolate milk with me. Hopefully I don't pour this all over the place. Everybody's kind of familiar with this process, right? Just making y'all hungry, thirsty. All right, here we are, doing life and... This is kind of the flavor of our life, if you will, right? We just kind of got this milk life, you know, kind of got our own little flavor happening. You know, at some point, we begin to add some things, some rich content to our lives. And, you know, the Word of God is this way. And, more, and God's Word is filled with all kinds of things that, that taste a certain way. All kinds of dimensions of revelation, of seeing things. We sang about quite a bit of that. And when you put it to song, right, it, it helps us to kind of get a taste for it. But there are promises from God that taste a certain way. There are realities from God that taste a certain way. There is God's word that reveals things, that brings light. It brings experiences into our lives. So, you know, hopefully on a daily basis, you're kind of picking up God's word and you're reading it and you're here this morning and you're listening to preaching and go home, do a daily devotion, listen to a podcast, right? So you got all kinds of ways that God's word is, is coming to you, right? 
All right, so here we are. This is the essentials. How many guys would say, hey, this is the essentials to making chocolate milk? Real quick, let me see your hands. Okay, you all fell for that. How many of y'all would like to come drink this in the condition that it's in right now? Is this how you make chocolate milk? Did you notice that on this table is missing a key element of making chocolate milk? Ah, somebody said a spoon. <laughs> right? This is what the Christian life can be like for a lot of us. God has deposited some amazing things into our lives. We have the reality of the Spirit. We have the Word of God's truth. But isn't it interesting that, you know, maybe you're sampling your own life, or maybe you live with somebody, got a roommate, you're married, etc. You've got friends. And you know that there's chocolate in the glass, but when you taste it, it doesn't taste too different than it's ever tasted, quite honestly. And it kind of tastes like everybody else as well. Until you do this, and something begins to change. There's this transformative effect on your life. You begin to look different, live different, taste different. Can everybody identify with the possibility that you are not fun to taste for some people? How many of y'all can admit that? And then God adds something into your life. How many of you guys know that this is going to taste different than this? Isn't it? But in a weird way, all the ingredients are the same in these two glasses. But it's not going to taste the same. Okay, there's a little song that we want to hold on to. You learned it if you were in church when you were young. It just goes like this. Read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. All right, so two things, two key ingredients. Reading your Bible and prayer. Lots of people get around God's word get some concept of God's word. You are going to sit here today and and there's going to be something of God's word is going to pour into you today. But the question is, is it going to be stirred up in your life and is it going to become part of who you are? Well, that's the difference between reading your Bible and praying. Prayer does something to us. Prayer is this very basic component of our lives where it is, and and, and it's got much more to it than what I can get to uh, in this one series. There are aspects of praying that are about communing with God, that are about just relating to God, that are about sharing the same space with God in a cognitive, I know you are near to me manner. There is praise that comes out of our lives in prayer. There is interaction with God. There is the sense of God speaking to you, using your name, talking about the events of your life, saying something specific to you that you needed to hear, that maybe somebody else didn't need to hear right now, but you needed to hear God say that to you right now. 
And there's no substitute for this. Preaching is not a substitute for that. Your small group that you go to, where you listen to other people talk about the realities of the Christian life in their life, is not a substitute for your own prayer time with God. But, but yet, this becomes such a neglected dimension to us. And the, and the difference is, these deep realities, they just, they just never begin to characterize our lives. So the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace. I mean, just stop right there. I and mean, the list does not need to go farther than that. When you taste your own life and other people, does it taste like love? Does it taste like joy? Does it taste like peace? Are these realities in our lives? There's this massive teaching in the Bible on forgiveness. The, the receiving of forgiveness from a holy God. And, and then people get around us. And does that flavoring touch who we are? Right? I'm, I'm amazed to, to see conflict in the body of Christ. To see couples and marriages and families that just can't seem to interact with each other and get along. I mean, seriously, you've... You've been around the forgiveness of God and you're having a hard time with forgiving somebody else? Can I tell you, you are cup A. Somewhere in the bottom of the glass of your life is this massively influential concept of forgiveness. You don't taste it and nobody around you tastes it either. But you know, if you climb in your prayer closet and you get around a God who begins to communicate to you personally that you have been on the receiving end of this massive forgiveness from this holy God, you, and you start to fill in you and who you really are, how unimpressive you and I really are, how offensive to God we really are, how negligent we really are, how much we don't get around to doing the things that we wish everybody else would get around to doing in my life, that I don't get around to my list on a regular basis. And you know, you know when you come in contact with it? Not when you're in conflict with another human being. That's not when you come in contact with your own junk. You come in contact with your own junk when you stand in prayer in the presence of a holy God and you sense his nearness and his presence. I can guarantee you, if you're a person who, who lacks humility, you don't make use of a spoon very much in your life. There is no way you can get near the presence of God and not get low. You read the Bible. When people got around God, they got low. They, they, they looked for dirt to get underneath it. Because it put them in their place. And what a sad reality that, that we could be called by God's name and we could be an arrogant bunch of people. That we could have higher ground than anybody else. How many of you guys think you got higher ground in your life? You're intellectually superior. You're, you're more creatively superior. There's just something about you that's more superior to somebody else. Well, you, you're just hanging around with the wrong crowd. Get in the presence of God and break your spoon out and just let him interact with you and you will find dirt to climb underneath it. 
And then you will emerge from that and you will get involved in people's lives and you will be a different person. You will taste different. Somewhere, somewhere, somebody invented chocolate milk without a spoon. A Christian life with meetings in it. Right? This is sort of like, you know what this meeting is like? This meeting is like cheating this. This is, this is a meeting like, like pulling a straw out and just sticking it to the bottom of this thing. And all of a sudden, you know, it's like, ooh, ooh, I went to a conference. Ooh, I went to church today and God went, ooh, man, I got something, man. Ooh. But then it just kind of just goes away because you don't have a prayer life. These things don't stir into you on a regular basis so that they become who we are. Now, that's why this series is so critically important. I hope we walk away with a few weeks of staring into Hebrews chapter 4. Is a spoon. I hope we just get a spoon. We enjoy the benefit of being in the presence of God the way in which he intended us so that the effect of these deep truths that we come to know show up in our world. Look at this, this quote here in your outline from O. Halsby's book on prayer. He says, prayer is a labor for which there is no substitute in the kingdom of God. We all need to be reminded of this because it's easy for us to look upon it in exactly the opposite way, right? If there's anything that becomes optional in your prayer life, in your life, isn't it your prayer life? Yeah, just option number one, Bible reading is option number two. They're only the two most important things, but you know, life gets busy and they become optional. We are inclined to think that when we are real busy in the work of the kingdom of God, then we can, without danger, spend less time in prayer. This work is the most important of all because it is, listen, prerequisite to all the rest of the work we have to do in the kingdom of God. Prayer is the prerequisite. The work of praying is requisite to all other work in the kingdom of God for the simple reason that It is by prayer, I love this phrase, that we couple the powers of heaven to our helplessness. The powers which can turn water into wine and remove mountains in our own life and in the lives of others. The powers that can awaken those who sleep in sin and raise up the dead. The powers which can capture strongholds and make the impossible possible. Right? That's what happens when God's power breaks into our world. And so God has said, you are a part of this broken world. Your life is full of, of helpless moments. But prayer is this means through which you and I couple our lives and with all of its trouble with the power of God and into our moments where something is dead, something is immovable like a mountain, Something needs to change that we cannot even begin to figure out how to change. Prayer connects the power of God's kingdom with our present world. So there, there's 26 words here, and I, I want to I try and make this simple. So here, here's our 26 words. Let us then, and even every one of these words, and I've put this actually, I think this is in your outline more than once because we have some leftovers from last week that somehow crept into your stuff here. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help in time of need. So these 26 words feature a time of need, right? a, a real recognizable moment, a moment where you're going to recognize, this, this is, I'm in over my head, this is, this is a real need that's going on inside of me. A, a need to draw near an attitude. And this attitude of confidence comes from doctrinally informed awareness of things that God has done so that you and I could have confidence to even come near him. There is this destination. We are moving toward a throne of grace and we're gonna find something and receive something and that's what we're gonna bore down in today. All right, can I get my picture up here? Here's our little visual aid here for us. And I just wanna break it down into three key things here, but there's these 26 words are are scattered here. At some point you are here and, and life is about to sit on you in some way. Some recognizable thing is about to come to you that qualifies for what we described as need. And it's going to be big and it's going to, it's going to make you cry uncle. It's going to feel intimidating. You're going to feel overwhelmed, overloaded, helpless, perhaps even hopeless. All right, that's coming. What, what are you going to do in that moment? Right? Get in touch for a second right now. You, you came in here this week. What was in the need category for you this week? Doing life. What was in the need category for you? Just think for a second. All right, so when you became aware that this thing qualifies to be called a need... Right, here it comes. I see it. That's a need right there. What did I do? Well, here's what's called for. Movement is called for. Right? This is a verse about moving. It's about drawing near. So where, whatever location I'm finding myself in, next week we'll talk about this, but whatever location I'm finding myself in, movement is required. So I'm going to move from where I am to before the throne of grace. And there's all kinds of truth here that helps us know that we can go there. But when we go to the throne of grace, we go there to encounter something. We go there to acquire something. We don't just go show up at at the throne of grace and walk away empty-handed, unaffected. And we'll talk about that next week. And today what I want us to talk about is mercy and grace. So let, let's start here with, with understanding. Here's the need element. and This is in your outline there. Prayer comes out of the setting of need in this passage. So, so need comes to us, and here's the, the response. Here's the prescription. When you see need coming, there's a lot of possibilities of how you're going to respond to it. Worry, fear, imaginations, all kinds of possibilities. But the Bible calls on us to, to pack our bags and move. Here comes need. I'm going to pick up from where I am. I'm going to move toward a throne of grace. So there's a, a posture here. And if you read Hebrews, right? Can we open up to Hebrews if you have a Bible there? Because I'm going to skip around, but I think we've got these verses on the screen as well. But when you read Hebrews, you are interacting with the people who are being featured. In this book, they're featured as weak and needy. Human beings in Hebrews are are weak and they're in need. They're, They're in a condition that's got some brokenness and frailness and vulnerability to it. 
But the help that we get is, is for Jesus to actually come and put on our condition. And so there's an identifying here that this glorious God, he became one of us and he identifies with our condition, right? Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You and I live in a condition involving weakness. That's part of what defines who we are. This is why need should not be surprised to us. If you do life, you're going to bump into something that's bigger than you. But he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. But he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This is, this is what's surrounding Hebrews 4 verse 16, right? If you Fast forward a little bit from Hebrews 4, verse 16 to verse 7 in chapter 5. You hear this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he Suffered. So Jesus enters into our humanity. He puts on these limitations and lives in this broken world and experiences temptation and suffering. This is need stuff for us. Now, how does the Son of God respond? When, when need comes upon him, how does he respond? Well, he offered up prayer and supplications. The Son of God, even in his perfection, puts on the frailness of humanity, and when need sits on the frail human creature, prayer is what comes out of him. He launches before God in prayer. Even the Son of God in human form has done that one, and that makes sense because God created us to need him. The creaturely dimension of who we are is wired, designed by God to need something beyond us. We need our creator. So the right thing for us, and I know we, we feel like something's wrong in life, right? When, when you get in over your head, you can't figure something out. You can't fix this. There's nothing you can just kind of press and reset this whole situation. You feel like, oh, something's, something's wrong. Somebody did something wrong. Who do I blame? I did something wrong. Don't forget, the creator designed the world to be bigger than us, heavier than us, too hard for us. He designed it so that we would need him. So that going to God and feeling the need to go to God, even the Son of God has done that. Hebrews 2, if you backed up a little bit earlier, verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus exists eternally as God, but he puts on human flesh to identify with us. Now, if you read the rest of your Bible, did you know Jesus retains that human form forever? So the God who existed in eternity as spirit now has put on and exists with a connection to this human frame that he put on in order to identify with us. Now, this is, this is an incredible thought here. There, there's, a, there's a phrase, 
he says he is sympathetic. There's this, this phrase in, I'm not sure if it's engineering or music that would generate this phrase, but it's a phrase called sympathetic resonance. It just has to do with frequencies is, is, is what's happening here. But if you put two pianos in the same room together and you walk over and you, and you hit A sharp, is there an A sharp? Thank you. Thank you. Um, you hit A sharp on this piano, the A sharp in this piano is going to begin to vibrate. It's this sympathetic resonance thing that's happening. So you have this incredible image, and this is super helpful when you and I are wondering whether God gets us or not. The, the Son of God has come and he has put on humanity, and he has experienced life as you and I experience life. He has been tempted. He has experienced suffering. He has done the human thing. So when you and I, so to speak, get a, get a pain right here in our humanity, right here, this thing right here is oh, severely hurting right now. In, in an amazing way, in the heavenlies, there is this God who has retained human form that right there, that's what he's feeling too. He puts on our humanity. He has borne our griefs. He has experienced our lives. And so there, there isn't such a thing as this God who doesn't get us, who has forgotten about us, who's not aware of exactly what's going on with us. And this God stands to make intercession before us, and he knows what this feels like in you. This is a weird thing to say, and I don't want to chase this thought too far. But because Jesus was sinless, he, he knows your suffering better than you know your suffering. Because he was the only one who was tempted yet without sin, he, he knows your temptation better than you know your temptation. Here's why. You get tempted day one, here comes temptation. It presents itself to you. It advertises. It works on you for a moment. Day one, some of us give up on day one, right? We go, deal, I'm with you. All right, some survive the day two and day three of fighting this temptation. How many of you know these guys know this temptation better than that guy does? Does that make sense? A week goes by. Some of you are just battling it out looking to God, experiencing some things, fighting this thing. This thing's developed new techniques and it's coming at you in a different direction. Same temptation, but you're a weekend now. How many of you guys know that this guy knows that temptation better than the guy who quit on day one? Right, Jesus never gave in to the temptation. So he doesn't just have a week's worth of dealing with it. He, he goes all the way to the end. He knows our temptations better than we know our temptations for he has experienced them. And when you and I begin to vibrate in those categories, he gets us. And he is standing before the throne, interceding on our behalf. So don't for a second think he doesn't get us. But here's this, this backdrop of our life. If you look over in Romans chapter 8, this backdrop of our life is we're going to be in touch with weakness. Inescapable part of our existence. Romans 8 verse 22 says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Let me pause here for a second. Because in God's plan, part of what he is doing in redeeming us is helping us to not so fall in love with everything here. Because this is not the final deal. You get a different body than the one you got right now. Some of us, that's really good news. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I know going to the gym has its value and getting up at some ridiculous hour and running until you, you know, almost pass out. I'm, I'm sure that's valuable somehow. You guys who are doing it, y'all keep it up. The rest of us are just going to sleep in. Um, but, you know, you're going to get another body, right? There, there's something coming beyond this world, and, and there's a groaning. And you can't make that disappear. Even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit still live in that realm. And so, listen, I, I know I won't chase this too far, but if you've gotten around a prosperity gospel, a faith, uh, hyper-faith type gospel, there is the idea that if, if you're still living in a world that feels fallen, there must be something wrong with you or with your faith. Or there might be something wrong with you and how you read the Bible. Just saying. Because this verse introduces us to the idea that even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we have this power from God, but we still experience this inward groaning, he says. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, listen, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Stop. Weakness. Hebrews type weakness. Weak condition, vulnerable condition. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Great, Spirit, what are you going to do to help us? For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So we, so we have the Son of God who has become high priest putting on a human body in the heavenlies interceding for us. We have the Spirit of God who is in touch with our weaknesses, who responds to our weaknesses, who is praying for us. All right, how many of you know from that chart when, when the need falls on our life, the thing we need to do is pray. That's what we do. When we experience our humanity, we pray. We go before the throne of God's grace. And next week we'll talk about whether we're really doing that or not. All right, so when we go before God's grace, what, what is it that we need? Well, there are these two words that are in this passage in Hebrews. We are to draw near with confidence to the throne of God's grace that we might, two things, receive mercy... And find grace to help in time of need. All right, well, there's all kinds of needs that are in our world, right? There's all kinds of moments when you and I experience a need. I don't think this is intended to be a laundry list. I think it's more like umbrellas. I think these are just big umbrella words. There's, there's this big umbrella word of mercy. And this big umbrella word of grace. And, and grace may have some particulars to it. Mercy may have some real particulars to it that show up in our life. But in a, in a generalized sense, when we go before God's throne, 
what we are there to become more aware of, more convinced of, more affected by. We are there to take possession of mercy and grace. And, and these things, they do something to us. When, when mercy comes alive inside of me, it's like adrenaline. Right? You know what adrenaline does to you? It produces that fight or flight kind of, there's you, there's you just doing normal life and you're just, you know, you're just going along doing whatever. And then adrenaline kicks in because of something threatened to you or some moment that got your heart. Your whole body goes into a different mode in that moment. You know, body chemistry begins to change. Different things begin to get produced. Your heart rate begins to increase, right? It's preparing your body to, to take action. Well, there's something about doing life that, that when mercy comes into my bloodstream as a believer and grace becomes, I'm aware of it. I see it and I know something about it. It's like adrenaline. It, it kind of produces in me some kind of an effect for life. Now, now listen, that's different, right? This is where I need prayer because everybody, did I just introduce the word mercy and grace to anybody here today? Let's go ahead and stick your hand up. You just, you've never heard those words before. You, you never read them in the Bible before. Anybody? Right? There's all kinds of information about mercy and grace sitting inside of us, but not necessarily tasted. When you come before the throne of grace, you are there to receive mercy and find grace. This is an acquiring. This is an experiential dimension to your Christian life. Prayer, and I'll say this next week, prayer is intended to produce subjective realities in our life. It might not be the same every time we climb in a prayer closet, but there is something about you walk out with this sense of, hmm, that tastes like, that tastes like mercy. Ooh, that is, that's good. Ah. And you're affected by that, right? If I serve you up something really good, you taste it. It's like this whole experiential thing happens. Well, we're supposed to experience this. And I I love the fact that these words have some nuances to them. A couple of guys point this out here. Henderson and Kistemacher say, although the terms mercy and grace are often interpreted as being synonyms, their difference ought to be noted. Westcott makes the distinction succinctly. Man needs mercy for past failure and grace for present and future work. There's also a difference as to the mode of attainment in each case. Mercy is to be taken as it is extended to man in his weakness. Grace is to be sought by man according to his necessity. Leon Morris says, we need mercy because we have failed so often. And we need grace because service awaits us in which we need God's help. So listen, and and, you know, carefully, as you read the rest of the Bible, you're going to find mercy and grace, mercy and grace. They're kind of, they kind of, the Bible will do this with them. But there are nuances to these words that we need these nuances in our experience. So let me just take these two words apart for us today. And then we're going to have a moment to pray together. Mercy. I think in your outline there is a little definition from the theological dictionary, the New Testament. Elios is in the Septuagint. That's the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So when this word is, is picked up and used there, 
Elios is mostly used for hesed, which is the Old Testament word for God's covenant love towards his people. And when you see the word loving kindness in the Old Testament, that's the word hesed. So it's God's posture as a covenant God with a particular people to be to them what he longs to be in love. That, that's what that word hesed is in the Old Testament. So that's what gets translated into the New Testament, the word mercy. This denotes, listen, an attitude arising out of mutual relationship between relatives, hosts and guests, masters and servants, those in covenant relation. It is an act rather than a disposition with trust as the basis and loyalty as the appropriate attitude. An element of obligation is thus intrinsic between ruler and subject. This is particularly so on God's part. God, listen, God has freely bound himself to his people. That's what's in this word. There is, there is something that God has done to bind himself to his own people. God's has said is his faithful and merciful love, which is promised, and listen, may thus be expected even if it cannot be claimed. I can find myself in a place where I have no right. I haven't done anything that puts God in debt to me to where I can expect he will now show up favorably toward me. But what mercy does is it puts God in that posture toward me in spite of that. And this is huge. Right, Hebrews chapter, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2. Look at this passage with me just for a second. This, this passage so radically takes a turn. But, but again, you, you got you, you, you to... Gotta, you got to stop drinking the Kool-Aid of, moder- of our modern American culture that, that just can't stand to ever hear anything about me that's not reaffirming and positive. And doesn't everybody know that being positive is so, so important? We even quoted Zig Ziglar today. You want to talk about a positive guy? Thanks, Phil. I don't mean to step on Zig, but, you know... Um, Listen to what this Bible verse is going to say. Now listen, I'm going to get seven verses into this, and when you get almost to the end, you're going to want to hoop and holler. Almost to the end. In the beginning, you're not going to feel real good about yourselves. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you, huh, you. It doesn't say that, but I'm making that up. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You know, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, right? This, this is you. This sense of not only were you in the world that's really nasty and ugly and got all kinds of problems, but you were following You were going along. You were participating in these things. You were following the devil. How many of y'all came in here this morning and go, man, I remember when I was following the devil. No one says that, right? 
Okay, now, now listen, the Bible tells you this. It's not saying, you remember that day when you sat down at a desk and you signed a deal with the devil? It's not talking about that. There's a reality that there is a God of this world. His one purpose is for the world God created to not serve the purpose God created it for. That's his job. So the moment you and I stop serving the purpose for which we exist, we are following the devil. That's how that works. You don't have to meet him, shake hands, sign a deal in blood or anything, wear red pajamas, none of that stuff. Verse 3, among whom we all, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's just the Bible informing us. You and I have a history where we were doing whatever we wanted to do. Some of it was vile. Some of it you'd never want anybody to know about. Some of it you're very glad no one knows about it. It was impure. It was embarrassing. And you and I were doing it. We were making choices to do it. Matter of fact, it's what we wanted to do. We did it because we wanted to do it. That was the condition of our lives. The biggest but in the Bible right here. But God. But God. That's the backdrop for this but God. As a matter of fact, if you don't have those verses, this is more like a but God. I'm sorry, what did you say? But God. I can't hear you. But this is loud because our condition was that bad. So listen, don't, don't drink the Kool-Aid that makes you allergic to having anything said about you that doesn't applaud you or reinforce you. You will never sing very loud to God if that happens. You will never be amazed by God if that happens. And this word mercy will be drained of its meaning. It won't mean a thing to us. But this is the backdrop of our human condition when but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why, God, why did you do that? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So on and on and on, like mercy and grace upon mercy and grace, like next week and a month after that and 10 years and 10,000 years and a million years from now, God, that's what you did? And, and, and what did I do, Lord, to help you accomplish that? Well, Keith, you followed the devil. That's what you did. And you acted on all of your homemade impulses and designed a life that was just really special and good for you at the expense of others. That's what you did. But I was motivated by something else, God says. I was motivated by the mercy that was in my heart toward you. Now, be very, very careful here. On the one hand, if I were to say, why would God be merciful toward you? 
Part of us wants to answer, I don't know. But that's not quite true because you do know. And, and this is where you don't want to fall in partnership with people who are, are, are not aware of what the Bible teaches. Because I, most people in the universe who believe in a God, they somehow believe in mercy. Matter of fact, they're, they're pretty sure they're expecting to receive mercy from this God. But they have no basis as to why. It's, it's mystery mercy. It's just something going to show up. You know, you have a five-minute conversation with a person and ask, you know, have you ever done anything wrong? Well, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect, you know. But when you encounter this God, what do you think that's going to be like? Well, you know, I, I think God will... You know, I think God is loving and I, I think God's merciful all the time. Is God always merciful? Everybody in every situation all the time. See, there's this mystery thing that we just kind of lump ourselves into some unspoken contract that we think exists, but, but we can't figure out why would God be <clears throat> merciful toward us? God's mercy is not casual. It's intentional. And you can take great shelter in it because it is going to insist on finding you and on being mercy to you. From God's end, not just because you'd prefer it to be that way, but from God's end, that's how mercy is going to come to our lives. So, question. Have you come to the creator of the universe, to the Yahweh of the Bible, on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Is that what gives you this ability confidently to draw near? See, God has a reason why there is mercy because this verse that talks about mercy just a few words before it says we were by nature children of wrath. But now we've received mercy. So wait, 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 wait. rewind the screen. So right over here, we were, by nature, children of wrath. There there was going to be the disapproval of God on this. And now, all of a sudden, there is this favorable response from God that is mercifully directed toward me. What happened between here and here? See, if if I've got accidental mercy in my theology, I don't even know this exists, maybe. But something happened between being a child of wrath and being an object of God's mercy. Do you know what happened? The Son of God stepped in and he took God's wrath upon himself and he received what I deserved for my partnership with the devil, my living for the passions of my own life, my allegiance to me and no one else, Jesus Christ willingly steps in and says, pour his wrath on me. And when he drinks my wrath, gone, I now find myself as the object of God's intentional mercy toward me. I can explain that mercy. Keith, why is there mercy on your life? Because Jesus Christ stood in my place and took my sin upon himself and drank the cup of wrath that would have been mine so that I could receive mercy. That's why there's mercy 
on my life. So if I'm approaching this God on this throne, apart from Jesus Christ, where did your wrath go? Where did the fact that God sees us as dead in our sins, sins being the label, in cahoots with the devil, living for the passions of the world and the passions of my own flesh. That, that's how the Bible describes me. And because of that, I am children of, of wrath. I am of the race that's going to receive opposition from God and judgment from him. How did mercy become part of my story? See, there's only one way mercy becomes part of my story. Somebody's got to remove the wrath. Otherwise, the wrath is part of my story. And Jesus Christ removed the wrath. And and he's the only one who ever could remove the wrath from my life. So why, why do I know something about mercy? Well, because Jesus Christ made mercy available to me. And my hope and faith and trust is in him. See, the Titus goes on and says, but when the goodness... And the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So that's how God interacts with us. But, but here is a dimension for those of us who are believers, who walk with God and who need to find mercy. You and I are, are, are living in the daily trenches of life where temptation comes to us and we don't always win where we give in, where, where sometimes we brush up against our former partnership with the devil. Sometimes the passions of my life lead me down a road that creates a storyline, that creates a mess, that creates a need. And then I'm back to the beginning of that picture, aren't I? But here's the really, really hard part. What do you do when you are the villain who created the need in your own life. You're in a mess, and you need God to step in. You're going to go to God in prayer? Well, if you're the victim of circumstances, that's a little easier. If everybody else around you has done something wrong, that's a little easier. I can go to God. I'll go to God because look at what everybody did. You know, I just, I just was in the wrong place at the wrong time around the wrong people. And, you know, I got to go to God and say, God, I, I need some help here, God. That's a little different than having made decisions one upon another, having neglected to respond to God one time after another after another, having disobeyed God, having had the value opportunity of acting on a fleshly impulse or trusting and obeying God. And I said, no, 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 again and again. And this thing grew bigger and bigger and bigger and put me in such a hole that I'm drowning now. And I'm in a mess and I've wrecked not only my own life, but half the people around me. And now I'm going to go stand before God and ask him to fix it. On what basis would I expect him to do anything for me in that moment? Mercy. Mercy. 
Now listen, some of you here know what it's like to live in that hole buried underneath the accusations and the failures and the rubble and the fallout and the habits. But what you need, if you're going to keep going, you're going to need to have the adrenaline injected into your system of mercy You're going to need to get close enough to God to where what you are more aware of than your failures and your life story is the mercy of God running through your veins so that you can pick your life up and make decisions and steer different. But listen, I can talk to you about mercy. You're going to have mercy in the bottom of your cup. But if you don't leave this meeting and pray about it, you will never taste it. Not the way you need to. And mercy will be a foreign word to you. What about grace? We are to receive mercy and we are to find grace at this. We're on a quest. We're at the throne. We're seeking these things. The word in the Greek New Testament for grace is the word charis. And it it had word usage outside of the Bible. So when you see here in this definition, Hellenism is the Greek culture in which the word charis would have been used. So Hellenism... Charis becomes a fixed term for the favor shown by rulers. And in a second development, Hellenism stresses the power in Charis. This power which comes from the world above. That's how the secular people use the word Charis. So there was this sense that they were aware that the word grace meant favor. Just favor coming into your setting, into your life, and power that came with it. And and that's the word that gets picked up and gets used in the Bible for this word grace. And let's let's just tour the Bible for a moment here, right? Because remember, we're we're going to get grace. That's where we're going to the throne, right? We want to be able to draw near to the throne of God. And when we move away from him, we want to be able to say grace is in the backpack. I'm, I'm very aware I've stirred grace up off the bottom of the container And I feel it at the edge of my fingers right now. Here's here's how the Bible uses the word grace. In Acts chapter 6, verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Acts chapter 11 tells a story about Barnabas showing up to visit this town of Antioch where the gospel has come there and the power of God's been at work and he shows up and he, look, look what happens. When he came and saw the grace of God, he saw the grace of God. Grace was not invisible anymore. Grace is invisible in one sense, but at some point it changes the color of the milk. At some point it changes the way things taste. And he shows up in Antioch and he can, he can taste. What, what, what is that I'm tasting? Oh, it's grace. He's looking into the people's lives there and he sees grace. And he says he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. When he shows up in Antioch, this Mediterranean town that would have been engulfed in a blend of Greek, Roman, and a little bit of Judaism in it. What does he see here? Well, I imagine he saw transformed lives. I imagine he saw people with affection for God. Imagine he saw people who hungered and thirst to know God more deeply. He saw that and he knew, you know, that that doesn't happen by human strength and effort. 
That's grace right there. God's grace has been here. It's different in this place. Acts 14, 26. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. They went out, right, on this missionary journey. They're going to go from Antioch. They're going to be commended to the grace of God. It's like, I entrust you to the grace of God. That's, that's what this church was doing when they sent these folks out. Do you know the people in our lives who you and I need this kind of an understanding of the grace of God because we're going to have to entrust other people into it? You got somebody in your life who's facing the cross winds and the, the, the shots and the difficulties, the temptations, the sufferings. At some point, you can only do what you can do. And you're going to have to commend them to the grace of God, to the grace of God, to the favor and power of God at work in them. You, you got to do this with your spouse. You got to do this with your children. And that's what they did. Romans 1. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. It's like this is a commodity that you know when you get it. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. How does anybody go from being a rebel to God's cause to being obedient to God? How does that happen? How do the nations do that? How do your children do that? How does anybody here this morning do that? By the grace of God. And do we need a a reminder of this as we labor underneath the, the, that's a need in your world, isn't it? You have a need in your life to see people in your life saved? Turn to God in faith? Where are you going with that need? You're going to run into human ingenuity. You're going to just burn out every sense of effort that you can make. You're going to construct a better argument. I'm nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But my movement needs to be to the throne of grace to to receive mercy and find grace. I'm going to need grace. Everybody who's serving in Alpha Tuesday night, you're going to need grace to show up on Tuesday night. Because there's nothing any of us are doing that's going to cause somebody to turn to obedience to God apart from his grace. Where are you going to get that? At the throne of grace. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like praying. That's what we're doing. We're praying. Titus 2.1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There's a strength that comes to us. James 4 verse 6. But he gives more grace. That, that'll, that'll mess up some of your theology right there. Own it? Because I, I get it, and I'm going to talk about this next week. I get it. You've got grace. Yeah, you do. You do. you got grace. Right on the bottom of your glass. You got it. But when this turns around and says, well, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, I thought he'd already given grace. thought that day was done. Uh, listen, there's a lot of stuff that God has done and that God is doing. You know, be careful that you just don't turn into this, well, I don't need to appropriate anything. This is a verse about appropriating. This isn't a verse about standing before the throne of grace and just reminding yourself of that which is true. You are there to receive mercy and find grace. 
you might feel like it wouldn't exactly be theologically accurate for you to say, I showed up, no grace and mercy, and I walked away with grace and mercy. Well, you know what? That can feel that way, can't it? I wasn't tasting mercy. I wasn't tasting grace when I approached the throne of grace, and now I am. Uh, Okay, in that sense, well, it was there all along. But if it was there all along, this Bible verse wouldn't be telling you, get before the throne of grace and acquire it, encounter it. Because let's face the reality of our lives is we don't taste like this stuff. And we need to. We desperately need to. You see that last verse there? Romans 12 just highlights, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Whereas in one body, we have many members. The members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having Gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. There there is an empowering from God for the life that he has appointed you to. And there are moments when it feels like I, I, I don't have the power or the necessary favor to pull this off. Whatever this is. Maybe it's just walking in a season where where health has been really, really challenged. And you need grace from God for that season. Maybe it's, it's a marriage situation. Maybe it's a financial world that you're living in right now. Maybe it's serving the kingdom of God in some way that it feels like there's not enough of me to do this. There's not enough. I can't do this. That there's need. Okay, you recognize need? Yes, I recognize need. Move to the throne of grace and find grace for this hour in your life. Which is what I want us to do in closing this morning. Eric, you can come back up here. I think it's just, it's very helpful, these nuances that we're going to come before this throne we stand at the throne of God and we look back over our past and we look forward into the future. And we look back in the past and we see this great need for mercy. What has brought me to this point of need may be the, the troubling contributions, not completely, because it's never completely one thing, by the way. Don't, don't be one of those people who you've learned in life to see one thing and now you blame everything on that one thing. Can, There's a bunch of things that brought you to this moment. But when you're standing before that throne and you look back over the things that pertain to you, your story, your sense of failure, neglect, waywardness, if I'm going to move forward, I've got to get unparalyzed from that. That cannot be the script that's writing the future of my life. I'm going to need to receive mercy. I'm going, to, I'm going to need to have that transferred into my soul in a way that I become very, very aware of it. And then maybe there's a direction that God is calling you to. There's something right now for you that God is telling you to do. Circumstances that need to be altered, that need to become more favorable, they need to work out differently for you. Well, then you need to find grace. Grace. 
don't you? Now listen, the Son of God, when he put on humanity, he put on the, the, the frailty, the weakness of this human form. And he prayed. He, he sought from his creator that which he needed, and he didn't have sin and failure to deal with. But you and I do. This, this, this can't be, this, you know, please, you and I can't do Christianity without a spoon. So right now, here's what I, I want you to do. I, I, want you to, I want you to allow the Spirit of God to stir in you. To not let this sink to the bottom of your glass. And you heard something about mercy. I mean, right now, what, what, what is it about mercy that you need? And what is it about grace that you need? In your life, your setting, right now, let God just begin to stir that. Let him make you aware let him begin to expose that area of your life to an awareness of his mercy and of his grace. Look, let's stand up together. Lord, it's, it's good to be together. It's good to turn down some of the noise and the activity and, and just get reminded about who you are. About your purpose in this world. How we are a part of that. <clears throat> Lord, we don't want to being another church service or just open our Bibles or hear something that's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and just, just kind of let it sink to the bottom. Lord, what a precious thing you want for us. You, you want our lives to taste like mercy. You want us to be aware that when we sip from our lives, we we taste grace. It's recognizable. It's in us. It's affecting us. So Lord, we need help. Would you stir us this morning? Would you stir those things near to us, near to our souls, Lord? I pray for those who are here this morning, who, who are in need of mercy, Lord. believe there are, there are some here you have so insulated yourself. You've so insulated yourself. You don't want to re-engage God. You don't want to get near. Because when you do, it just it, it's a weight that crushes you. It's a discouragement that overwhelms it. Because you see your life. You see where you are. You see where you're not. You see who you're not. Your way of dealing with that has been to insulate yourself from God. It's hard to pray. 
It's hard to get around the things of God. You have not found a solution by doing that, and you know that. You hate the way your life feels. And you need help. This verse describes the help that God has for you. He's calling you with all the mess, all the unexplainable, all the habitual things, all the choices that you feel like have brought you to this point. And he speaks to you when he says, you, move from where you are. Come here. Come near to me. You can come with confidence. I've made a way for you to come with confidence. I want you to taste my mercy. I want you to know what it's like for me to be for you. To long for your good to give you a life that is detached from your script that's led you here. A life you never could have imagined could be yours. Because it doesn't come from something you've done. It comes from someone else. Lord, in this room this morning, there are some who have just been paralyzed by mercy, by a lack of mercy. They're not taking another step, but Lord, this morning, God, this morning, Lord, right here in a real way this morning, Lord, we come to this throne to get something. And if we really get mercy, we cannot stay paralyzed. God, would you let today be a a new day for some? For some who have so put their walk with you on a shelf and so distanced themselves that from now on, from this day forward, they would be mindful. They would have the adrenaline rush of an awareness in their soul of a mercy that is tenacious and guaranteed mercy that comes but God style. I just want want everybody to just pray for this for a moment. Just pray for some that are just paralyzed. They don't come because they feel they cannot come. Just pray for them right now. Just pray for God to bring this truth near. Lord, would you do that? Would you do that among us? Friends here, family members, part of our church, just somebody visiting today. Lord, stir, Spirit of God, stir. Through prayer, Lord, we're crying out before you. We're standing before you, Lord. We 
We want to receive mercy. We just don't want to learn about mercy. We just want to know that mercy somewhere exists. We want to receive mercy. Even this morning, Lord, let us receive mercy. Let it be ours. Let it characterize our lives. Lord, there are some here this morning who need to find grace, need to find an overwhelming awareness of your power working for their good, for their favor in their circumstance right now and what you're calling them to. Lord, there'd be some here this morning who can't find a way out. There's no way. They can't add up the bottom line. The numbers don't work. The relationship is shut off. There's no way that person's going to respond. There's no way to bring restoration. There's no way for healing to come into that situation. But God. God, for every person here, who needs from your throne to find grace, to find your favorable hand at work in a powerful way that's bringing about results that could never happen without you. I pray for those who are here finding a way out. Lord, let them find in their hearts a fresh awareness of your power and your favor at work, and work in people, at work in timing, and work in decisions, at work in their physical bodies. Lord, this is what we need from you, Lord, as we draw near. Lord, for those who are here who need to find their way forward, into a new setting, into a new place, into something you're calling them to do. And it just doesn't look like there's even a path. It just looks like they're just at the end of a road. And there's just no way it seems like to get from here to there. But God, the God who put us in a posture so that he might lavish his grace upon us in the coming ages. Lord, would you lavish some grace this morning? Would you take lives that need to have grace stirred up off the bottom of the glass right here this morning? Lord, stir it up. Make us aware there is this favor. There is this power. There is this enablement that you apportion to our lives so that we might walk in whatever you have called us to walk in. God, let us taste that. Let us leave this place today with a taste of grace on our lips. With an awareness of mercy near to us. Lord, that's what you said we needed to help us in our time of need. Okay, let me dismiss us this way. I'm not going to do this forever. I know we did this something like this last week. I love the fact that we fellowship. We love each other. We're glad to be around each other. Um, but could I ask you to do that out there? Because 
the worst thing in the world is to hear a message about getting something stirred up inside of you to where you can taste it and walking out in this condition. So, so don't leave. I, it makes sense that it's going to take you more than, uh, you know, thank you for the four and a half minutes of stirring. Maybe you need more than four and a half minutes. That's okay. That's pretty normal, actually. So can we just leave this place as a, a place that's going to allow for some just to kneel down in their seats, come forward and pray, but, but when, when you start to change color, when you start to taste grace and mercy, then maybe you're ready to go. And if you're not, that's okay. Take some time. Right, so if you want to pray further, right where you are, that's fine. If you'd like to come forward, just find a private place to pray. Let, let's do that. And if the rest of us who are dismissed, if you just would quietly find your way out into the foyer and, and hug on each other and engage one another when you get out there.